Jim said he will take questions. He'll ask the questions, and I'm sure there are a hell of a lot of them. Uh, if they're too difficult, I won't audience hear them. Was absolutely <laughs> okay, Rex, you start off. Speed story, though. What? Tell us, tell us uh, what happened for the rest of the war, and tell us how you rejoined the Royal Navy. <laughs> well, how long you got, Jim? <laughs> what did he I wants do? He wants to know what happened to you for the rest of the war, and... Um, when you, re when you joined the, oh, yeah. the RAF. Well, i can tell you that very quickly, of course. We didn't go back. They said we were, we didn't. We were held in reserve. We had to build up back to our normal numbers, which is fair enough. They then said, you are now preparing for the landing in Japan. And we spent the rest of the year preparing to land in Japan. We even had ship's transport allocated to us. But fortunately, they dropped the atom bomb and we didn't go. But as for... I stayed on quite a while after that. I eventually, incidentally, went to sea. I'd like to add that. Very important. <laughs> after the war was over, I was sent to join a minesweeper, an ocean-going minesweeper. And I went on board the minesweeper and the captain, who was a whole lieutenant, said to me, well, this is really something. We've finally been sent a fully qualified watch-keeping officer to join the ship. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, but uh, I won't be much good to you. I've never even been on the bridge of a ship. <laughs> he said, but it says here in your documents you passed as a qualified navigator in 1943. I would say... Jim Dixon's a navigator. What was he, a year? I had five weeks. So I must tell you something. When did I rejoin the Navy? Well, I left on the last day of 1946, as on hostilities only. I rejoined on, in September 54. I'd been out too long to re-enter. I had to rejoin as an able seaman. So I left as a lieutenant, rejoined as an able seaman. Mind you, an able seaman with a DSC has certain advantages. <laughs> and I quickly came up the scale and I joined the very first special duties officers course in England. And when they didn't know what to do with me when I finished that, they sent me, ostracised me out to Australia for two years. And that's where we started. That's where he came on board the Cootamundra, and I still remember him arriving on board the Cootamundra alongside in Sydney in 1957, and we were the few officers on board that ocean minesweeper were down in the wardroom soon after lunch, and all of a sudden there was a clatter clatter as a big trunk started to come down the gangway, and it was J.H. Speed, DSC. And we thought, what the hell's going on here? It was closely followed by this large apparition who arrived at the bottom, said, my name's Speed, and I drink whiskey. What's more, I had to provide my own good Scotch whiskey. And they drank it all. He had bought some duty-free cigarettes. And a couple of hours later, we got to know him, and we all knew him very well but he was proved the most marvellous shipmate I think 
it's testament to the fact that he went from that stage a sub-lieutenant or he just sort of qualified then in 1957 he went through the ranks very successfully in the Royal Australian Navy we served together in in the Melbourne soon after the uh, collision with the Frank Evans Jim became a qualified and very good watchkeeper in the Melbourne and other ships he finished up his career as a full commander down here at Lonsdale and I doubt there are Another, there's another 90-year-old, or just coming up 90-year-old, doubt whether there's another one anywhere in the world who had the experience and could recount uh, their experiences on D-Day in the manner he did tonight. Any other questions? Yes, Tony. Commander Speed. <laughs> this is his son. You actually chose not to mention the secrecy with which, with which they deceived the Germans, but I think it'd be worth just mentioning a couple. I think people would be interested to hear a couple of the methods they used to uh, deceive the Germans. Totally deflect what was going to happen. Well, the first thing they did, they built false armies, three of them. There was one just north of Dover, one in Scotland, one in Northern Ireland, I think. They actually put together whole units, tents, artificial tanks, artificial uh, cars, things came, went, moved. Now what else? The thing that really settled Hitler was the story of the man who never was. (coughs) On the beach of Spain one day, a body floated ashore. I don't think it was in uniform. I can't remember. Wrapped, attached to his wrist was a briefcase. And in the briefcase were the details of the landing at the Par de Calais. And that convinced Hitler that's where it was going to be. The man who never was. But they did a tremendous number of things. I mean, the senior officers... In it, Eisenhower and uh, Montgomery <coughs> had doubles. Uh, Montgomery's particularly, he was seen out uh, in Gibraltar and uh, they assumed that he was in Gibraltar. He was discussing landing in the south of France. And they were all set ready to go, except for one fact, that he got pickled. And unfortunately, the general himself didn't drink. So they didn't believe him. But you can't really put forward ideas. They had to completely sell the story of not being where they were going to be. And they made it. Any others? Do you remember what went through your mind as you were approaching the beach just before dawn? You got that? Well, I'm not sure I can, but being a human being, I would say a certain amount of intrepidation. Mind you, I was only 19 and a half, and I want you to grasp the idea that it was always, to me, the big adventure. I always looked on it as the big adventure. But I must admit that as we came into the beach, 
and there wasn't going to be anybody else there but the enemy, one can't help but feel a certain amount of uh, uh, worry. <laughs> and I can't tell you more than that. I really can't. Did I remember rushing up there. Can you talk about the map that was put up at Dryad? Because I think that's interesting too. The which? She wanted to know about the map that was put up at Dryad. At Dryad? Oh, the huge map of Dryad, which is on the Southdown Hills on one side, was uh, uh, Eisenhower's headquarters. And uh, on the wall in the... Um, I don't even remember the lounge. Yeah, it was the lounge, just anyway, by the dining The whole wall the was a map of that area, the beach of Normandy, with everything plotted out on it in minute detail. We were never shown exactly where we were going to land until we were actually in the LCH heading for the beach. And then, as we looked at the map... I know just before that, actually, before we got on the LCH, on the LCH we actually saw a map with names on it. Um, a captain said, there's only one place in the north of France where there's a canal and a river side by side leading 12 miles into a town and a, a small town on the side. He said, that's Cannes, which is what's up here, and Wiestrom on the side. He said, my father used to go there and lose money every year in the casino. We first found out where we were, I should say two days after we'd been on the beach, and in came a landing craft and they passed us down a daily newspaper. And we could read what we were doing. There were no radios, no news bulletins, no telephones. You just got on with your little bit, hoping you were doing the right thing, because you were never told what you were doing. It was all very quiet and peaceful. But that map, I think, I'd love to know what happened to it when they sold the place we were talking about earlier mm. on. It was absolutely fabulous mm. to see it. it yeah. Is the building still there? The building, no. Southwark House, as far as I know... No, they've sold, well, they've sold... They've sold it, but uh, whether the building... I think the building probably... It's still there, Jim. It is. Still, still. The map is still on the wall. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good on it. They take tours through and they talk you yeah. through the whole process. Right. Good on it. Yes. Yes. Jan? I'm very concerned about him not getting enough toys. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I, from the men that I've interviewed about the females, I know the problems they had with uh, keeping the stores up or the rations or the food up to the men that were out at sea, bit yeah. with the Mulberry Harbours and so on. And I was wondering what sort of provisions they made, because the Australians had beach landing rations and they had commando rations and so on, which either lasted for three days or seven for their amphibious landings. Did you, I've never thought, did you have the same? They produced a thing, goodness, what do they call it? The beach ration. Yeah. It was a box that contained enough food for eight men for one day, yeah. or one man for eight days, or you got a bit bored. Yeah. It had everything in it. Uh -huh. It had cigarettes, toilet paper, sweets, the lot. But the food was usually bully beef or Mrs. Beaton's something or other special stew. <laughs> uh, whereas the Americans had a very different thing. They used to have ham and all those special bits and pieces and ice cream, but we didn't get those. But they came in with us very early. And after we'd been on the beach 
a very short space of time, part of the beach group's main activity was to provide a kitchen, which they did. Now, we didn't have bread, of course, we had biscuits in tins. They produced a machine for crushing the biscuits. They used to make flour and cook bread and rolls. So when we could get away, we could go up there and get a free meal. But in the early part of the time we were on the beach, I must have been fed going over on the LCH, although I must admit, I'm sure we did. We were allowed to use the wardroom. But um, after we landed, there wouldn't have been much thought given to 8 to 19 year olds having his lunch <laughs> they seemed to think other things were more important but when you started to ask that question I think he got quite excited because he was eyeing that <laughs> 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 he's making up for lost time yes Matt um, Jim if you could give advice to someone joining the Navy today what would you tell them if you wanted to join the Navy today yeah, don't what, do what? it no <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you about the Navy today. Uh, it's not my what, Navy. What, what advice would you give them? Well, I suppose if you're going to join the Navy, quite frankly, there are a lot of very, very good trades in the Navy without just being uh, an upper deck uh, officer or sailor. You don't see the world the way you used to. You will spend time at sea, but we always did anyway when, once you were in the Navy and got to sea. Um, I'd say join. By goodness, it's a, it's a well-paid, good profession. I think the services are as a whole. And to keep them out of trouble, what would you say? <laughs> you wouldn't know. Don't, don't get caught. Well, I must admit that um, in my day, they weren't allowed to get into trouble. If they did, they got treated very harshly. Uh, I think nowadays they get away with a lot more. But, I mean, look, it's active. It's going. Nowadays there's a lot of sports and activity involved. Um, you can get on and learn a trade. You can carry on in the evening doing study, which we more or less were expected to. And I would say it's a very good life. I really would. I don't think it's badly paid nowadays. So. I got six and sixpence a day. Six and sixpence a day. What's that? About just over half a dollar as a midshipman. And when we were given the hazardous duty allowance, which we were when we were in Strathpeffer, which I did forget to tell you, they gave us that, it doubled our pay. My pay, anyway. And just before I landed in Normandy, exactly one week before, I got promoted to a sub-lieutenant. So I was King Bin then. <laughs> Right, well, uh, Rex, Rex? I think we've all been very privileged tonight. Yes. Um, one of the wonderful things, uh, a side benefit for being president of this organisation, is meeting people who I admire. Thank you very much. And Jimmy Speed, you're a beauty. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you.